0: Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Matt, and before we get to our episode today, we want to hear how we can make Fifth Draw better for you. Do you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a guest you'd like us to get on? Please let us know. Now, enjoy the episode. And our guest this week is uh, Lewis Alderman. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank
1: you, Matt. Thank you for having me on. It's great.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to have you here, man. Uh, this should be a real fun, real fun conversation. Uh, it's a complicated topic. What are we talking about today, Lewis?
1: So today we're going to be talking about Magic the Gathering. Uh, it is probably the premier I don't know if is the right word, but it is the granddaddy of the collectible card game trend that popped out in the 90s. Uh, I know a lot of our community are into uh, dra- Dungeons and Dragons. I think you had a podcast on uh, pen and paper RPGs. Uh, there's a lot of tie-in and connection with that um, community, but uh, Magic: The Gathering popped out just about in '93, and it's been going for over 20 years,
0: man. It's a game I have played many times. Um, I'm currently in the middle of a run of playing it here with some with some other people at my friendly local game store in Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's it's just some good fun games. Um, so let's uh, let's dive into this. Let's let's start. Cause there's a uh, There's some weird depth to this game that we're going to get into kind of in in our topics today that's going to more focus on kind of lore and the world. Um, But let's start with just kind of what is a collectible card game and specifically what is Magic's take on that?
1: All right. So Magic the Gathering, again, I I mentioned it's over 20 years long and every year they produce uh, three, four different sets of cards. And every set of cards has its own story inside of it. So when you mentioned how it's got this depth of lore, they're making like a whole season of TV shows, or right? And they're making a movie every three, four months and releasing it to the, to the people, the, the players, and they're letting them enjoy it in a very gameplay uh, weird way. It's like you don't you watch a movie from start to finish. When you play a card game, you kind of pick the parts and build a deck out of that. Uh, and you tell your story inside their own story. So it's got this really crazy depth that you create for yourself.
0: Yeah, and, and specifically, you know, we're going to get into a, a lot of this as, as we go on, a lot of this depth. Um, so let's, let's, let's get to the bare bones, the basics of this. Um, what is a collectible card game, and how does Magic handle—what does Magic do with that formula?
1: Magic created the formula in a way. Uh, there were a couple of other companies that created a card game, created uh, deck builder games, but this is the first big hit as far as a collectible card game. Uh, Wizards of the Coast was the company that made Magic the Gathering. Uh, the uh, owner of Wizards of the Coast at the time was looking for a game that could be played in about 15 minutes that would fit inside the breaks of a D&D session, for example. They came back, Richard Garfield's the actual creator of the game, came back with this collectible card game where you'd open a pack of cards, piece together a deck made out of magic spells, monsters, and locations, and you'd play a, a quick game where you're a wizard dueling another wizard. Uh, the, very, uh, the phrase they, they use in Magic the Gathering is Vorthos, where it's all the lore, or the flavor of the game is you're, you're, you're a wizard dueling another wizard. And so... Richard Garfield, again, uh, made the Magic the Gathering formula out of these three pieces of game design technology. Uh, First of all, it's a collectible card game. Uh, People used to collect baseball cards. I don't know anyone who collects baseball cards anymore. But the idea is you've got these rare cards, um, common cards doing common things, rare cards doing crazy, extravagant things. And you'd play a game and you'd see your opponent across the table playing a card you've never seen before that kind of created this idea of, I want that card. I want to collect that card. I want to get out and go social and collect that card. And some of the original sets of cards, uh, well, I don't know if you've heard of the black Lotus, Matt.
0: Yeah. The black Lotus or the uh, power nine,
1: the power nine. These are the most iconic cards in the entirety of magic The gathering. Uh, I was looking up when I was doing my research for this, I looked it up and one black Lotus went for about $27,000, uh, Within, within the past couple months.
0: Yeah, there's a, so those old cards can get just bonkers on their price points. Right. Um, uh, so Partially that... because of what they do, and partially just because of the collectability of it.
1: Right, so this idea of you know, make a collectible card, but it also can function in part of a gameplay, that was really the first key, was make this game that you have some of the parts, and someone else that you're playing might have other parts, and as you play and as you socialize with the other players... That creates this community. That creates this uh, entirety of the game through playing it. You don't get the full experience until you play someone else who has parts that you're missing. So the collectible card game just you know blew up from there. Uh, we had a lot of people that ca- uh, that came afterwards with the Pokemon card game, the Yu-Gi-Oh card game, uh, Japan. It's the
0: original Star Wars card game.
1: Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a big one. I actually have a box behind me of uh, original Star Wars collectible card game uh what worth it nothing
0: worth nothing now. well worth absolutely
1: document. nothing it's all nostalgia value like yeah. some games would hit it big some games would hit it poorly um but actually i was gonna say japan took two collectible card games so hard that a wizards of the coast eventually made another uh ma- not magic the gathering made another collectible card game solely for the japanese market and it, every time they kept trying to bring it back to America, I think that's Duel Masters. Every time they kept trying to bring it back to the West, it would bomb, because they they realized how much the Japanese market loves collectible card games. Now, <laughs> I guess you don't play with, uh, when you catch lightning in the bottle, you don't play with it too much.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. You just kind of keep doing what it's always done.
1: Right, so the uh, two other areas of the collectible card game that really makes Magic the Gathering stand out is the fact that they have a mana system and a color wheel. Uh, mana is the main resource of Magic the Gathering. If you're going to cast a lightning bolt, you're going to need some mana. If you're going to summon a soldier or, or a, a dragon, you're going to need mana. So to prevent people from drawing cards and emptying their hand and saying, I win on the first turn, which is by the way, is exactly why Black Lotus is that $27,000 card.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can win
1: immediately. If you play with this you know, old card, they don't print those anymore because they broke rules to the mana system where you have to play your lands, your locations, your uh, plains, your islands, your mountains. All of these lands create resources that control the pace of the game. You can't play a game-ending card on turn one if you need to have so many resources in your stack, so the mono system was a really interesting way to control the pace of the game, allow everyone to have a chance to uh, show their deck, show their uh, strategy off. And the third part is the color pie. Uh, I I tend to call it the color wheel. I'm a bit of a minority in that regard. Most people will call it a color pie, and this is where you can really personalize the game. Uh, the mono system is broken up into five colors, and it's Take out your psychologist hat for a second. Each of those five colors has this aspect, uh, this goal that says, I think the world would be best if this. If you're playing on the white color spectrum, uh, I'm going to go through them real quick. If you're playing on the white color spectrum, you're playing into the idea that law and order, civilization and conformity, that's the number one thing. It's best when it's being the good guy that means it's giving everyone a chance to succeed it's saying you are just as important as this guy over here this soldier who's fighting battle he's just as important as the next soldier but at its worst it also means don't be unique you have to be you have to work the same as that guy you got to lift the same load and it 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 talks about all these societal norms and if you feel, if that's your personal ideal, you'll kind of feel like, oh, I maybe I should play a white deck. Maybe I should play this army soldier kind of build because we can all work together and be more valuable as a whole. That's kind of a white uh, mana uh, philosophy. We've got the blue mana philosophy, which is about knowledge and ingenuity. And it's really the most meta of the game. A lot of people look at blue after you've played Magic for a bit. You'll see, oh, it's got all the control. It's got all the... I say you can do this or you can't do that. That's because it knows the most. It knows that knowledge is power. And uh, if you're like playing, if you're playing a game where you could say no to your opponent every turn, you really fit in the blue mentality at its worst. When you, when you say I have to have control, I'm not going to let this game get away. That's really a blue mentality. And if you're playing blue and at its worst, I'm repeating myself. But at its best, it's all about it's the blank slate, uh, tabula rasa. You can be anything you want to be. If you come prepared with knowledge or willingness to learn. So all these color theories are about improving yourself or improving the world. And with uh, blue, it's through knowledge, through accumulated knowledge. We're going to move on to black mana philosophy. This one has a bit of a problem. Early magic, black was just the color of evil.
0: It has gotten away from that, thankfully. Thankfully. uh,
1: The idea originally was that black did anything for power, it would be willing to bend and break the rules to say I'm gonna win. Somebody in the uh, in the creative team at Wizards of the Coast decided, let's give Black a heroic side because at its worst, again, Black will do anything. They'll cut any corner. They'll uh, be they don't care about morality. They'll they'll kill anything. They'll they'll be the pragmatic character. When they added the heroic qualities, they realized well the reason you're cutting any corners because You are the most important person. It's the kindest way to say selfish as possible. (laughs) It's about self-empowerment. So they fix it and said, if there's a hero or a heroic character out there who says, I'm going to win no matter the cost, that's kind of the black mentality. I'll do whatever it takes to succeed. And sometimes that means literally cutting deals with demons. Sometimes that means... Being a, being a bit of a cheapskate or being a bit of a con artist, uh, using your creativity to improve your standing, because if no one else in the world is going to look out for you, at least you're looking out for yourself. That's probably the best way I've heard uh, Black Monophilosophy described.
0: Yeah, it's still definitely got the got the strong overtones of Sith and Vampire.
1: <laughs> well, yes, and as we move into the Red Monophilosophy, you'll actually see this overlay of uh, the roguelike character. If you move into Red, you're going to talk about passion, liberty, and creativity. Well, if you've got that lovable rogue-type character where, sure, they'll do some stuff that doesn't make sense, or they'll do stuff that's a little selfish, but they do it for the right reasons, that bleeds into the red mentality where passion isn't important. Uh, I'm going to backtrack back into black for a second. When you do that rogue mentality for selfishness, I'm only in it for the money, yeah, it's it's got that bad side. But anyways, back to red. We have this passion. Now, again, Magic the Gathering is a game about a duel between uh, master wizards. What's more passionate than this rage, this anger and fear, inspiring fear in your opponent? Red kind of gets this bad rap because it's all about the internalization of, of your power. If you create the idea from inside of you, it's a creative solution, and that comes from your emotion. You don't think you feel, and you get the job done. It also gets tied a lot to the fires of the mountain and the earth itself, and all of the colors have this tie to the elements, but red has always been tied to the fiery passion, be it the battle passions or the passions of love or despondency or you know any kind of real emotion at its maximum fits in the red spectrum for the, for the color pie. And that brings us to our final color, and that is green mana. The green mana philosophy is all about the natural order. We've got this forest filled with birds, beasts, uh, and of course, since we're in a fantasy environment, we've got centaurs and elves, and they all kind of fit somewhere in in the roles that nature provides them. And green monophilosophy is built around this idea of growth. You grow from where you were born into this destiny that was decided by the natural order of things. They kind of believe in this Gaia spirit that says, you were born to do this, and you're going to fill that role. If you see two uh, beasts fight in the wild, well, actually a very circle of life. If a uh, lion hunts down a gazelle, eats it, well, that gazelle's job, according to Green, is to have fed that lion so that lion can get stronger. Very Darwinistic.
0: <laughs> so that's that's kind of the basics, basic outline to the game. And you use those different colors of mana to to cast your spells, to drop your opponent down to the zero life, right? That's kind of the... The nuts and bolts of it, I guess.
1: Right, yeah. So you're using your mana to say you're a better spellcaster. Well, what's what says better than being able to you know, beat up your opponent and say, I knocked you out using brute force? There are some tricky ways to win where you get rid of all their cards. There are tricky ways to win with cards that literally say, you win the game, or vice versa, cards that say you can't lose the game. Because you collect all these cards from all these different sets, you can create some really interesting interactions, and the way you play, and the colors you play, and the the mechanics of the game you play, really speak out about who you are. Uh, so, Magic the Gathering, as much as it is as much as it is competitive, it's really an ex- a self-expression game. There can be a level of art
0: to it, as in a lot of things like this, as in a lot of lot of games. You know, you've got your people that are all about you know, I have the perfect deck that fires off every time and other people that are just like I just want to play with kitties <laughs> and and everything kind of in between that and really the kind of the beauty of this system is that all those play types are perfectly valid.
1: They're all perfectly valid and one of the uh, best things about Magic the Gathering is it has many different formats, different ways to play. Uh, if you were to play with every card printed in Magic the Gathering, you'd be playing with over uh, 70 different sets, and each set is like a couple hundred, so we're talking about like 16,000 different cards. If you were to play with the broadest spectrum of rules, that can get crazy. That's where we have uh, some broken gameplay where people can win without even blinking.
0: That way lies madness.
1: <laughs> that way lies... there be dragons. Um, <laughs> Lots <laughs> they, of them.
0: Real angry uh, ones.
1: Dragons are a very popular creature type, uh, especially in red, but... Um, but as we start deciding, oh, we want to we want to control the game a little bit more and have a little bit more fun or or balance to the game and less chance for the game to break. They start cutting down the formats. The largest format was uh, vintage and legacy, where you can play with anything more or less. There's ban lists, of course, but then you get modern, which says you can play with any card that has been printed since 2002, if I don't miss my guess. And the more common format is standard, where you play with the most recent two years of Magic the Gathering. And that's where a lot of people get their most competitive play, is because it's new, it's exciting, and who knows what could happen because some people are still trying to solve the problems of how do I get my opponent uh, and reduce their life total from 20 to zero without them doing the same.
0: And that's that's also, you know, that's probably going to be if you walked into a game shop and people are playing Magic, Good odds that that's probably what they're playing, is standard.
1: Right. Um, But I actually have a handful of decks in front of me uh, for a format called Commander. Oh, buddy. Yes, sir. Commander is a wild... It's it's the Wild West of Magic the Gathering in the best way possible. Uh, So there's a lot of characters in Magic the Gathering. We've got 20-plus years of characters being introduced. When there's a unique character that there's only one of, if you've got a character like uh, Karn, the Silver Golem, or uh, I'm actually trying to find one right next to me because I don't have all these names. Ulamog. Ulamog. Like, if you find these characters that have this unique title of Legendary, you can build an entire deck around their theme. And this is where you can get really creative because the goal in Commander isn't always to win. Sometimes the goal is to say, I'm going to take this lowly goblin and I'm going to make him a hero of his own story, and he's going to, at the very least, make everyone have a blast playing Magic the Gathering. So Commander is this massive game of multiplayer. Uh, usually you'll play one-on-one in a regular format in Commander. It's always a four- or five-person game.
0: And it's, it's just bananas what can go on in, in a good Commander game.
1: <laughs> uh, I actually have a very beloved Commander, uh, Melek, who is a red and blue legendary creature who is able to give you copies of the spells you cast. Well, the thing is, I've tweaked the deck so much that I could take my entire collection of cards, my entire library of cards, and effectively just flip them into play and say, I cast all these. It takes a load of combinations of cards. I need five different cards in play to make it work, but there's nothing more exciting to a blue mage than saying, I could play the rest of this turn forever, can you all forfeit so I don't have to?
0: <laughs> Commander can get ridiculous. It's it's a real fun format, uh, and you sh- that's that's one that if if what you hear in this podcast at all interests you, or uh, if Magic has been kind of slowing down and losing interest in you for you at your game store, mm-hmm. and y'all don't have Commander, uh, mm-hmm. give Commander a shot. It will it will help.
1: Right, and for the old school Magic players who may not be playing right now. Uh, you could also call it Elder Dragon Highlander. That was the original name when they were developing the format. Uh, that was an entirely player-built game. Uh, all the players that went to tournaments and stuff, and they got tired of stressing out about how do I win fast, they started playing for fun, and they created this game, Elder Dragon Highlander. When Wizards of the Coast said, we want to support your format. The the company said, we want to support this fan-created concept. Uh, they had to change the name a little bit, so they called it Commander. But it's a lot of fun, and it's so good to see that it got supported.
0: And almost every card is legal. Like there's a very small ban list.
1: <laughs> yes, very. Uh, it, it is the biggest pool. And if you're joining in Magic for the first time ever, look at Commander as a very deep pool. But it's a lot of fun because you're gonna catch a lot of rules and cards that you never heard about. Uh, it's it's friendly because no one's gonna try to no one's gonna try to pull one over on you, in Commander unless you're, again, in a, competitive, a very competitive environment.
0: Yeah, and it's also going to be where you meet the people that are going to be the most welcoming, typically, um, because they're not just the super competitive players if they're in their campaign the commander environment. Um, but it's also one of those things, if it's something you want to try out, uh, go pick up one of the pre-constructed commander decks. They are surprisingly good.
1: Very. You you pick them up. You drop down. You find a group, uh, a pod of three to five people, and you play. And you're gonna have fun.
0: Give Commander a look. Commander's real good.
1: (laughs) It 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 is very good. Um, but with that, I think we need to start talking about where in the story these places are, because we've talked about a lot of characters and ideas, and it sounds very generic. That's because, well, Magic the Gathering started on a world called Dominaria. And on Dominaria, you have your kitchen sink fantasy. You've got princesses and castles, you've got dragons flying around, you've got uh, wise sphinxes on deserted islands, you've got uh, genies and demons. Anything that ever has shown up in some idea of, huh, I think that's in a fantasy story, has basically been on Dominaria.
0: Oh yeah, it had every, it had, it was your basic standard default fantasy world, um, basic D&D, it looked the same as all of those.
1: Uh, Tolkien was also a big inspiration, so you've got, you know, uh, trolls and wraiths and spirits,
0: uh, and you've got- And dwarves and elves and-
1: Literally, we could, we could just ramble for hours about what's in fantasy and it's in magic somewhere.
0: It's the, all there, yeah.
1: It's all there. Uh, They kind of designed Dominaria to be a hub world. Every, uh, and we didn't really talk much about the Planeswalkers. When I mentioned that you're a mage casting spells, you're a Planeswalker. You're not just any magic user. You are the big magic user that can visit other worlds. Dominaria is kind of the home world for the vast majority of people. And every Planeswalker just has this innate, uh, the way a compass points north, every planeswalker can find dominaria. It is the easiest place to get to in the multiverse.
0: Yeah, it's it's just a good little home base and it was it was the home base for magic for its first several sets.
1: Well, the first time they really left, well no, they left they left on two sets in early magic. This is before the year 2000. And then at about 2002 they left and they really haven't been back except for one nostalgia set which was bonkers. But and they've really just been exploring all the different worlds. And then when they explore different worlds, they go to places like Ravnica. Ravnica is this city world. Everywhere you go, every possible location you could go to is this metropolis, this uh, medieval-style metropolis city. There's no, like, farmland. People have to grow their grain on their roofs. There's no wilds. There's just deserted buildings. Like, Ravnica was this idea of, why don't we make a world where no one knows what the wild places are? On on Dominaria, in between everything is wild places. But on Ravnica, no. The, 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 the elves live in trees that were turned into houses. Not like a, a tree fort, but literally a house built out of a tree. Uh, we also have the world of Zendikar. And that is, if I could whistle the Indiana Jones theme song, I'd do it right now. It is an adventure world. Everything that feels like a a journey towards a goal, every rune delving, every temple raiding that you can think of kind of takes place on Zendikar because it is all about adventure. And it's it's crazy little trick because all these different worlds have different little nuances. It's an adventure world not because everyone's looking for adventure. It's an adventure world because the land itself moves. Now, I'm not talking earthquakes. I'm not talking... Um, I'm talking about... The land itself is animating. It's getting up and walking around. Have you ever seen a mountain stand up on two legs and walk off?
0: No, no, not often.
1: Not often. Zendikar is a world where you can't really have a city because your city might be on the back of something that decides to get up and go somewhere else. Uh, and they call this the royal. On Zendikar, the world royals, And it's created ruins that people explore, and it's created this lifestyle of nomadic adventure let's go find this old treasure because it got lost when the world kind of ruptured itself and changed um there is a dark secret in this world which we'll get to when we talk about the eldrazi horrors
0: yeah that'll we'll we'll get to those guys later on we'll get to those guys later of course every
1: world we go to has got their own little sets of villains some villains are just like "Mm, they're just bad guys on this world he's just an evil king he's just a bad wizard Zendikar and Dominaria and a couple others have these multi-realm, multi-planar danger guys.
0: uh, Mirrodin. Mirrodin has one of those.
1: Well, Mirrodin's the next one I was going to bring up where, in a very Metalocalypse way of saying it, Mirrodin is here to make everything metal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, everything is metal on Mirrodin. Uh, There's the subtype of cards called
1: artifacts, and if you find a really nice sword or if you find a a magical uh, implement, it's an artifact. Well, uh, Mirrodin is an artificially created plane by the planeswalker Karn. He's one of my favorites because he's just this big silver golem who's got his history throughout the Magic the Gathering storyline. And he decided, I've got to get away from it all. I've got to make a place where I can do my studies and, and grow as an artificer without interference. So he makes this metal plane. He artificially creates it and he starts deciding. Hmm. I, well, I got to bring things to study. So he pulls test subjects. It kind of sounds villainous now that I explain it this way. He pulls test subjects from across the multiverse, puts them on this plane, and says, "Okay, um, I'm going to let you all do your thing, survive. Kind of, uh, kind of survivor man style. Kind of, uh, kind of lost style." But then Karn goes off and does something else, and the experiment continues. And the people and creatures that got brought to the world started growing metal, like biorganically became metal. So not only is everything on Mirrodin metal, anything you put on Mirrodin has this drift into the metallic, artificial range of existence. So, so you
0: get like metal, metal trees and metal uh, fields.
1: Right Man. there's these lion people, the Leonin their their manes are metal. their hair is metal.
0: Hair metal is a pretty good pretty good choice. <laughs> yeah um, so uh, what's what's the next plane on the list?
1: So the last plane I'm going to talk about is actually not a core set plane. When I say core, uh, I'm talking about when they make an expansion that goes directly into the standard format of cards. There are formats of playing that they release cards for, like Commander, that aren't legal in the standard environments. They're less common, they're less pushed. They don't make a big deal about the marketing. So you have to kind of dig to find some of these uh, places. This one is a place called Fiora, and it is the home of the Conspiracy set.
0: Oh, that's a fun set.
1: So, Conspiracy was a set where we decided, where, where uh, Wizards of the Coast decided, we're going to have a four person multiplayer game format. But there's a way to play Magic the Gathering called drafting, where you open up packs in front of your opponent, and you, well, if you're into sports, you draft these cards. There's many different ways to do it, but uh, you can draft these cards and build your deck out of the cards you just opened. Fiora is a place all about diplomacy and backstabbing it is machiavellian concepts manifested uh there is a high city of palenio palenio paliano it's very italian actually the whole world is kind of inspired by machiavelli so the whole world has this italian uh twist to it but the high city of paliano has a mystical binding room where if you make a law if you diplomatically pass a law it is magically enforced on the entire population of the world.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bonker set. It does it did some really interesting things with the format.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, instead of playing one-on-one when you're playing the set, you're playing f- uh, three sorry four players against each other, and your goal is to, well, be the last man standing. And if you're talking about politics and nobles, well, their goal is to be the highest man on the totem pole, the highest person on the totem pole, And uh, one of the interesting facts I learned about Fiora just on this research was that uh, the crimes of murder, manslaughter, and general violence have never been outlawed lest people not be able to use these crimes to gain power in the the political structure. So it's really...
0: It it also takes, like, this uh, the conspiracy format. It's not just playing in your four-person pod games. It's also the draft itself, and you just pick a card that works with what you want to build. In this one, you're also like, well, I can do this to screw up him, or to help myself out, or to introduce just some chaos into this. And
1: The way you pick your cards matters a lot more in Conspiracy. Because you could pick a card that says, when you draft this, when you pick this card, you can write down something. You can write down a number. You can... Well, there's one. One of my favorites is when you draft this card, go buy another pack of magic. Get rid of the cards from the pack you just opened. Just They go somewhere else and you open up a new pack and you draft from that pack now. You can just really screw up someone's plans.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it gets, it gets bananas.
1: All right. So Fiora, again, has this crazy backstabbing uh, cloak and dagger story to it, but they really only tell it in the conspiracy format. Which is really the only way you can talk about backstabbing, because all the other worlds, there's megalomaniacs and uh, omnicidal demons. Like, uh, Fiorian diplomacy doesn't seem all that exciting until you play it. But the other stories you can talk about, and it it turns into this epic story. So I think we need to start introducing some of the characters and the overarching story of Magic.
0: Yeah, oh, well, let's, uh, let's start with those planeswalkers, the people who can get around to all these different worlds.
1: So to start off with planeswalkers, we have to talk about the fact that if you're playing magic, you're a planeswalker. The way you got all these spells and all these creatures into your collection, that's because you visited these worlds, you learned about it, you, you, you drew a magical bond with that creature or that spell, and you realize, I can do it this no matter where I am. Planeswalkers are the characters just like you that jump between worlds, and that's their unique thing. No one else in the multiverse knows that there's multiple worlds. It is uniquely a Planeswalker thing. You innately tie yourself to the entire multiverse, and you say, I can get somewhere that no one else knows about. And that went well for the first, let's say, half of the story of Magic the Gathering. But every time a reality-warping level Planeswalker, because the early game Magic the Gathering Planeswalkers were reality-warpers karn made an entire world because he was bored he didn't exert himself he just thought it into existence these guys were beyond bananas these guys were beyond bonkers and every time they got in a fight entire continents were just destroyed like
0: <laughs> well there was there's one plane that we didn't talk about um alara where mm-hmm. all war happened and the entire plane was fragmented into five shards Right,
1: and you'd think that would be the end of the problem, that all these shards that have this disrupted mana source, that that's the worst that could possibly happen. No, it's not the worst. A planeswalker, jealous of his lack of power, went and tried to, like, crash them back together and harness the energy of it as a a fuel for his inner spark, his planeswalker source of power. Like, the, the collateral damage of a planeswalker duel in the story is... Unfathomable. It is beyond uh, mortal comprehension, per se.
0: Yeah, it's there. There are some bonkers things that that planeswalkers used to be able to do. So, um, what happened that kind of toned them down a little bit?
1: So every time there was this destructive clash of power, uh, the war between Urza and the Phyrexians, the war between corona and the nephilim um that all these stories resulted in some part of a plane like dominari getting fractured it all came to a head in the set the nostalgia set i mentioned earlier time spiral all these uh, catastrophes left rifts in space and time uh that started to break up the plane and if it breaks if it breaks up one plane it shatters the multiverse uh At least the way they described it in this story. Uh, There was one planeswalker by the name of Teferi. During some of these wars, he's just like, I'm out. I really don't want to do anything with this. So he took his homeland and literally ripped it out of the dimensional space it's in and hid it in a little hidey hole. And he thought, well, okay, we're safe now. I'm good. Time Spiral happened because his plane started coming back in. And after millennia of all these damages, it didn't fit anymore. It was going to come back in and not—it was going to be a round peg in a square hole, and that was going to destroy the multiverse.
0: Time Spiral was a ridiculous set that I dearly loved. Um.
1: So they began repairing these these rifts, and it started draining Planeswalkers as an entity, as a whole. Every Planeswalker used to have this reality warping power, but as they started fixing the rifts, the Planeswalkers started feeling weaker. They started being brought back down to a normal— mage level skill with the final rift and the resolution of the entire story plot there all these planeswalkers got mended that's the term they use for it they were mended and now they're this regular group of regular mages that just happen to be able to planeswalk they can't warp reality with their mind but they can still come and go as they please
0: yeah and they call that ability the uh, planeswalker spark Mm mm-hmm uh
1: well at first everyone's thinking okay well I was good on my own at first. I'm still good now. I don't need to team up. Eventually, (laughs) eventually, bad stuff happens. New villains show up that it took old planeswalkers all their power to stop. These new depowered planeswalkers, they can't even hold a candle to them. So they had to start banding together. The biggest team of planeswalkers got the name The Gatewatch. And that includes... Uh, big poster boy, Jace. Jace, the mind sculptor. He is the name and face of Magic the Gathering these days. Uh, and he is a mind mage. He's a blue, amnesiac, mind-sifting mage. And he just does not respect people's personal space, or mental space, for that matter. Uh, we've also got Chandra, who is, well, a firebrand. Is a, is a passionate... Uh, red pyromancer with, you know, all these characters have almost cliche stories. She's got that troubled past and has difficulty controlling her outbursts. Of course, when you're a pyromancer, when you can't control your outbursts, things burn, and if you want to fight fire, just, well, use fire. It's going to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Chandra. Chandra's a fun one. She's uh, always right on that knife edge.
1: Right. And, uh, oh, well, the, the way they got the name Gatewatch was because they, they give an oath to each other and to the multiverse to say that they'll keep watch. For Jace, he's, he's kind of got this duty. He feels duty-bound, so his oath was, for the sake of the multiverse, I will keep watch. Chandra doesn't feel that duty. She's like, I don't need to make that kind of oath. But for her, her oath was, if it means that people can live in freedom, yeah, I'll keep watch. Like, she doesn't keep her emotions on her uh, under cover. She keeps her emotions, like her hair, on fire and outside so everyone can see it. But she cares about people. And that's what led her to join this, basically, uh, Super Friends team. This Justice League team of planeswalkers.
0: Yeah, and they are just as dysfunctional as the Justice League.
1: Very much so. We've got Gideon, the white guardian, uh, beefcake kind of guy. He is what a football player would like if he was also a mage. Um he is literally his super magical power is that he is literally invincible when he wants to be.
0: Yeah, he's um he's basically the Superman and he's, just as much of a Boy Scout.
1: He Boy Scout. Yeah, that's I actually named him the Beefcake Boy Scout Batman because he doesn't have Superman's strength. His kind of weakness is that he's a disillusioned zealot. He used to fight for a uh, an order a holy order and he realized that they're not really good people and he wants to protect everyone he can see sure he's indestructible but he's not really all that strong by himself he can't lift cars he can't throw down buildings he wants to save everybody but he's physically not strong enough to defeat people he's just unable to be defeated so it's a really interesting uh power to have and his oath was for justice and peace I will keep watch, like you said. He's the Superman.
0: He's the Boy Scout. So, uh, who who is our black?
1: The black planeswalker. The black aligned planeswalker. Uh, the black aligned planeswalker is Liliana of the Veil. Vale. She is team evil on the good side. She is a necromancer with this wicked sense of humor. Before the mending occurred, most planeswalkers were effectively immortal. Now, after that they got depowered, they're not immortal. But Liliana was the one planeswalker on the Gatewatch that had been immortal for that entire length of time. Since her spark ignited to the point of the mending, she was relishing all that power and immortality. Now she realized, oh, I've lost all this power. She sold her literal soul to all these demons trying to regain some of that power, and it didn't work you know, buyer beware, you made a deal with some demons. You it's hurting you more than anything else. So she decided to kill her way out of the deal. She is criminally selfish, and she only joined the Gatewatch because she was on good terms, better than bad terms with them. And her her oath is her oath is great. I'll keep watch. Happy now?
0: Yeah, that's very Liliana.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then when we get to our green-aligned Planeswalker, we've got the animist, Nyssa. She is friend to all plants. She's a uh, loving, tree-hugging, hippie stereotype of, like, if Velma from Scooby-Doo was a bit more withdrawn. Uh, Her kind of weakness is the fact that she spent her entire time as a Planeswalker being this haughty-toity elf supremus. she thought elves were the end-all be-all she doesn't need to help anyone else and then her home plane of zendikar if you didn't catch the undertones has this really nasty dark secret in it and was the plane itself wasn't destroyed it was drained of its vibrant mana and the life of all the elves on the plane were just destroyed just erased eradicated gone Nissa's kind of that lone survivor, but she was already so different because she was a planeswalker. She couldn't really associate with her her birth family or her birth society, so she's kind of secluded herself from that. And she's finally opening back up now that she's part of this team of people that she can align with. And for her, her oath for the Gatewatch was, for the life of every plane, I will keep
0: watch. Yeah, and this is this is a pretty cool pretty cool character um so there are there are other planeswalkers that we don't really have time to dig into but there are gosh a dozen others at least
1: yeah uh, a lot of these planeswalkers got cards after they brought them down to power level because they couldn't print them beforehand they couldn't make a card for these guys because they're so broken now they can make cards for them and uh you may not have known it but the gatewatch got one more guy i want to talk about him real quick he's big Catman man and he just kind of just showed up He just showed up one day, and he is the green and white aligned sixth Ranger on the team. And I kind of laugh at that because he kind of fits the Power Ranger scheme of the whole multicolored team group. So they're still growing the Gatewatch. Every once in a while, a new team member will show up, and there's a lot of Planeswalkers that have the opportunity.
0: Yeah, pretty much any any Planeswalker that they come across, and they tend to come across them fairly regularly, they all seem to be uh, attracted to... You know, plane altering and reality destroying danger, on a regular <laughs> basis. Um, pretty much gets an invite, at least.
1: Yeah, but, but uh,
0: not I guess all, with the exception of Tesseret.
1: Well, ooh, yeah. Well, we're gonna dig into some of these villains because these are guys that don't get that invite. <laughs> and actually, one of them did. Uh, you might not have been aware of uh, Garook. Let's start with Garook. You might be a little surprised he's on this list. He was the original green-aligned planeswalker for the face of Magic the Gathering. You'll see some early material with Garruk. Or is it Garruk? Everyone says it differently.
0: I've always pronounced it Garrick. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, he was he was the big bad uh, runs with a horde of beastmen dude, kind of George of the Jungle.
1: <laughs> if George of the Jungle could, you know, crush your face with a battle axe. But yeah, he, yeah. he was a really good guy. He was all about... Again, the Green is on the natural order of things. He's all about the hunt. He's like, well, you hunt uh, the animal you beat. You got to you gotta respect it. And it's going to survive. It's going to feed you. It's going to... And he was very in line with that idea. Then Liliana, in her quest to regain some of her power before she joined the Gatewatch, she cursed him. She got in a fight with him and left him with a curse. And things go south fast. He started hunting. Uh, the phrase was Hunt's bigger game. Previously, he'd hunt beasts. He'd beat them, and they'd join his team. He started hunting Planeswalkers. He started saying, no, I want to kill Liliana. I can't find Liliana. I'll find someone like Liliana, and I'll beat them. He's turned into this Terminator, Jason Voorhees-type character, uh, and when they printed his card, he's the only Planeswalker that has the ability, flat out says, destroy target Planeswalker.
0: Which is, which is the, some of the words in magic that will just terrify your opponent.
1: Right, like you, okay, even though you playing the game are a planeswalker, you can't be destroyed like that. You have to be killed by damage, but any of your friends or allies that you call on, this guy can just snap his finger, well, your opponent can just snap his finger and have Grok kill him. In lore, it's, someone came to help him one day, and Grok's like, I don't need your help, and he just axed him in the back, took his mask, and left. Like, no one wants to be friends with Garuk anymore because he's going to kill you. And he's doing it for fun.
0: And so, who are, who are some of our other baddies? I think I kind of let in with one of them. Um, Tezret is uh, an interesting one because of who he's aligned with.
1: So, so Tezret kind of fits the trope of the dragon. Yeah. I'm hoping you're chuckling at that because the guy yeah, he works for. That's a really for, good pun. That's a really good pun because the guy Tezret works for is almost as defining as the fact that Tezret's a villain tezzeret is this bad guy who's all about metal he he's not a villain from mirrodin he's actually a villain from one of these shards of alara where metal uh ethereum i believe it was was so, yeah was used to repair his arm and so he has this big metal claw and he makes machines bend to his will now you'd think that'd make for a really good villain and it does He manipulates the heck out of people who don't know better. Tezrat himself is being manipulated three ways till Sunday by his boss. Big bad dragon, elder dragon, Nicol Bolas.
0: And one of the few that uh, the mending didn't seem to hit as hard. Well,
1: no. Uh, Nicol Bolas got hit just as bad as any other planeswalker. The thing is... Um, he carries the title The Elder Dragon. This is because he is one of five Planeswalker dragons that were born on Dominaria that all they did for the, for their early life was study and grow as mage dragons. They were very sentient, very knowledgeable, but Nicol fit the, the color pie scheme towards the most magic-heavy user. He wasn't happy just being a reality-warping planeswalker. He wasn't happy just knowing basically every magical spell in the multiverse. He killed all of his brothers for the sole reason that he wanted to be the best dragon. He wanted to be the only head honcho, big daddy in the universe. When the mending hit him and brought him back down to a reasonable power level, he lost it. He, he is now doing everything he can to regain that power, and yeah, he went to Alara and tried to smash it together to create this conflux of power that he could absorb into his spark. He got stopped by the Gatewatch before they were called the Gatewatch, but every little scheme of villainy in the multiverse seems to have his little dragon claws in on them somewhere, and wherever Tezzeret is, Nicol Bolas seems to have some kind of interest in it. So yeah, it's really funny that Tesseret is the dragon to the big bad, who is the elder dragon.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great little arrangement, and anytime time shows up, I just get really excited, because artifacts are one of my favorite things to play. Uh, he sits nice and happy in my commander deck that I run now. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of our Magic the Gathering conversation. You can find Lewis on Twitter at BossLCA or on Twitch on Mondays streaming Overwatch, also at Boss LCA. You can find us on the internet at fifthdraw.com, follow us on Twitter at fifthdraw, or email us at social at fifthdraw.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Hoodley. If you enjoyed this episode, why not give us a rating and a review, or maybe tell a friend? Getting the word out helps us immensely. Our music is Arcade Montage by Lee Roosevelt and can be found at the Free Music Archive. That's all for this week. We hope you'll join us next week for another episode. And hey, thanks for listening.